Good morning. This morning I'm reading from the ESV version. We're going to read Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. A few weeks ago, we started a new series on the Beatitudes. We're going to spend the entire fall looking through the Beatitudes at the very beginning of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with these Beatitudes, eight Beatitudes, Jesus presents his vision for the good life. People have been wondering for thousands of years what's truly the good life. Jesus presented his vision for the good life, the blessed life on the Sermon on the Mount with these Beatitudes. So we're going to be looking at them. Uh, the Beatitudes, as you've heard me say in the last two weeks, they are not promises of rewards for good behavior. The Beatitudes, it's like wisdom literature from the Old Testament. The Beatitudes are observations, are descriptions of those whom God has blessed. Now, if, if you're not a Christian, uh, or if you confess to be a Christian, but no, you're not acting like, or living like, or thinking like one, uh, you probably last week heard the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and we're confused. But now, when you hear the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, you're probably downright depressed. Because it sounds like Jesus, using simple, if, if he were using simple English, were saying something like, happy are those who are not happy. Let me ask you a question. Is sorrow, and what I mean by sorrow is grief, sadness over the brokenness of this world and our lives and what we face, is sorrow a good thing or a bad thing? Or is it something else? What do you think? Just not looking for a good Sunday school answer, just whatever comes to mind. Is sorrow a good thing or a bad thing or something else? What do you think? Yeah. So if it helps, if sorrow helps us know our need for Christ, it is a good thing. We kind of talked about that with the kids earlier today. Yeah. Cynthia, you had one? You think it's a good thing, but it's hard. Sometimes we don't want to show the sorrow because it brings us down. I can relate to that. Yeah, yeah. Over here. I feel like you can have love 
Mm, that is profound. You cannot have love without sorrow being a part of the picture. Yeah, yeah. We don't like it when we're going through it. I, th I think that's an honest way of answering. Is it good or is it bad or something else? It's something else. It's, we don't like it when we're going through it. Jonathan. Hmm. Okay, so if it turns into despair, it could be really bad if we, re if we stay there in our sorrow. Very perceptive. We're going to talk about that in a, f in a few right here. If sorrow motivates to action, like meeting needs and, 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 and moving into action for a broken world, then it's a good thing. Okay, did I say that right? Yeah, a uh, couple more, Bob. Sorrow is an opportunity for growth. I love that. I thought there was maybe a hand. Uh, Dan and then Steven. Hmm. Sorrow can relieve tension. And, and what, it, what, it, what was the first phrase you used? You said there's a healing, a cleansing component. Yeah, cleansing, healing, excellent, right. And even from a, like a medical perspective, pain can produce healing. Yeah, uh, Stephen, last one. Mm, how we handle sorrow can determine whether it's a good or a bad thing. So almost like, and I'm hearing a lot of people say this in different ways, what seems to be riding on our opinions of whether sorrow and grief are bad or good is how we respond, how we respond to the sorrow and the grief. Really great. Thanks, everybody, for these responses. You've probably noticed this, at least we should be noticing this, that a lot, a lot, a lot of time and money and effort in the first world is poured into the avoidance of suffering and grief. Just look at, look at commercials, look at advertisements. A lot of effort and money and emphasis is put into avoiding suffering and grief in the first world. You know, in the ancient days, the ancient Gentiles in the West during Jesus' day, uh, there were two basic schools of Gentile thinking and philosophy, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And the Epicureans had this general worldview Seek happiness by pursuing whatever pleases you and avoiding whatever displeases you. The Stoics were a bit different. They said, pursue happiness by resisting emotions. Emotions do not keep you in balance with the universe. Uh, resist your emotions like grief, because grief, you know, is a huge, very powerful emotion, as many of you have already expressed in your, in your answers. Uh, avoid with logic and reason, powerful emotions, and seek happiness that way. And so similarly today, uh, we, we kind of do those two things. Uh, we drown our, sour, our sorrows with pleasure and leisure. We drown our sorrows. Or uh, we avoid our sorrows by sheer willpower. Now, Jesus was, in fact, when he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus was, in fact, aiming at something good, comfort. 
right? So, so the end game is good. He's saying they, will, they, they shall be comforted. But he comes to that end by a radically alternative route. Mourning. The way to get to comfort in a broken world is, according to Jesus, through mourning. And I hope you will see today from the second beatitude that God comforts now partly and will comfort fully those who grieve in hope. And as we talk about this, I want to share with you the mindset of those who mourn, according to Jesus, what their mindset is, how they think about mourning. I also want to talk to you about the present help that God provides those who mourn in this life. And I want to talk about the future promise that God declares to those who mourn. So the mindset of those who mourn, the present help God gives them, and the future promise that he declares to them. Now, the mindset of those who mourn, the kind of mourners that Jesus is talking about who are blessed, is something like this. Suffering is not good in itself, but is beneficial and actually indispensable for true human flourishing. Flourishing is a word, by the way, that I'm going to keep bringing up as, a, as another way of saying blessed. So you, you hear me say flourish or flourishing, I mean blessed. And I'm taking that from uh, the scholar Jonathan Pennington's commentary on the Beatitudes. So that's another resource I'm leaning on heavily these months, Jonathan Pennington's uh, commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Very, very good. Flourishing, right? Those who flourish, their mindset is Grief and suffering are not good in and of themselves, but are beneficial and even indispensable to truly flourish. As you read the ancient Hebrew wisdom literature in the Old Testament, you get this strong sense again and again that things have to get worse before they get better. For example, uh, the teacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 wrote, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. You get this ancient Hebrew idea, you know, while the Gentiles in the West were saying, avoid your sorrows or just fight through them. Um, the ancient Hebrews were saying, the way up is down first. In a fallen world, we know shalom, that was the Old Testament word that I think did convey what Jesus is talking about when he said blessedness, flourishing. To, only know, to know true shalom, you have to know the curse. You have to feel the curse of a broken, fallen world. You have to be able to compare that shalom, that peace, that blessedness with something that is not blessedness. You have to have had an experiential life of feeling the curse of this fallen world on you and the people around you to truly appreciate blessedness. Mourning, in a sense, is to acknowledge the curse's impact on the human experience. To accept the diagnosis, if you will, uh, so that proper treatment can begin. Another resource that I'm using a lot for this series is Kenneth Bailey's Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. 
If you really like to study the New Testament, this is a great one. Kenneth Bailey, uh, he describes three ways uh, that those who are blessed according to Jesus mourn. Three ways that those who are blessed mourn. The first thing he says is that they accept suffering. They accept it. They don't go rah, 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 I'm suffering. Oh God, let me suffer more. Let me suffer more since you bless those who suffer. No, but they accept suffering. If you know the story of Job, and if you don't, I highly encourage you to read it in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, Job suffers tremendously, and his wife's response to that is, hey, curse God and die. Say to God, forget you and get on with ending your life. There's no point in living. And Job's response was in Job chapter 2, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? So those who mourn accept suffering. And Bailey illustrates this uh, by comparing those who evacuate a hurricane path and those who stay and remain there. Um, hey, if you can get away from a nasty hurricane, you should. But some people don't have the means to get out and evacuate, right? And as you watch the news, Bailey says, you see it. The people who evacuate the hurricane path, what happens when they return? They are overwhelmed and devastated by the loss of their property. When you see the news reports and hear the interviews from the people who went through the storm, they're just happy and grateful to be alive because they endured it. They were in the midst of the storm and it changes their perspective. And, and now I know that illustration breaks down in many different ways. Uh, the point here is this. There is something unhealthy about altogether avoiding adversity and grief in our lives. Because what happens is it results in a lack of character. To avoid suffering and grief as a habit, even for us first world Westerners, results in a lack of character. And character is exactly what Jesus is getting at in the Beatitudes. What is fundamental Christian character? The second way, Kenneth Bailey says, those who mourn grieve is they grieve over the suffering of others, their neighbors, even their enemies. They grieve when they look at a broken world and see people suffering. They grieve when they see injustice. They grieve when they see hatred and conflict and oppression. Proverbs 14 says, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. See, those who mourn, their sorrow for others fuels in them a compassion that generates generosity and justice in practical ways. It moves them, their compassion, their grief for their neighbors and the suffering that they see. It moves them to redemptive action. The third way, the third way that the blessed mourn is they grieve over their own sin. They admit and have sorrow for the fact that they themselves are part of the problem. The Apostle Paul, this is a guy who wrote half of the New Testament, okay? One of the apostles. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 struggled with his own sin. He said, for I do not do the good I want, 
but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And he went on to cry out, wretched man that I am. Remember what Isaiah said when he was in the presence of God? Woe unto me. Paul said the same thing. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? True mourners acknowledge that the depravity, the effects of the curse on the human experience is not only out there, it is within themselves. So they accept suffering, they grieve over the suffering of others, and they grieve over their own sin. It appears that those who mourn, in a manner of speaking, know too much. The the true mourners, they know too much. Like if you're a doctor or a nurse, you know too much when your own kids get hurt and injured. When your own kids are sick, you know too much about the details. Well, in the same way, God, in a similar way, God's blessed ones are keen, they know too much. They're keenly aware of how sick the world is. They're keenly aware of how bad things are. And they mourn over the loss of glory and beauty and justice and love and liberty originally gifted to humanity by God. And they long for what always seems to evade the world, true flourishing. While others turned blind eyes to the world's troubles or to the troubles of people that are far from them or people whom they don't like, those who mourn absorb the world's pain. They absorb it. They take it upon themselves and they grieve with the world but not without hope. And that is why Jesus says that they are blessed because they know the second half of the beatitude, they shall be comforted. God, despite their grief, God will comfort them. See, suffering isn't good, but beneficial. It is beneficial because it produces in those who are truly blessed, their longing for God himself. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. This comfort that he's talking about is not only a future comfort. It very much is a future comfort. They shall be comforted. But it is also a present comfort. God gives present help in this life right now to his people who mourn. In John chapters 15 and 16, Jesus referred to his Holy Spirit Some of you know this. He said, I'm going to leave, and it's a good thing that I'm leaving you because when I leave you, the comforter is going to come to you, and he's going to remind you of everything that I've said, and he's going to convict the world of sin and tell the world about righteousness. The Holy Spirit is going to make this thing go global, is really what Jesus was saying. And when Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit in John, in John's gospel, uh, John used a word, a Greek word. It's paraclete. It was a legal expression. It was like an attorney. It was like an advocate, a legal advocate. And the English Bibles translate that word paraclete in interesting ways. Some of your translations says helper, when the helper comes. Some say counselor, when the counselor comes. Some say comforter, when the comforter comes. And that word, it's the same word that Jesus is using on the Sermon on the Mount to say they shall be comforted. There's a relationship here. See, these mourners 
according to Jesus, are receiving direct, personal, real-time help from God in this life. And, you, and, and the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, comforts the blessed ones, I think, as you see the New Testament play out in all the letters, in two primary ways, assurance and fellowship. The Holy Spirit comforts us by assuring us of what? Paul said it in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, we're heirs, heirs of God. And Paul said, look, if you are an heir of the king of the universe, if the Holy Spirit is reminding you that you are God's heirs, then what? Then he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. The Holy Spirit comforts us by assuring us that the love of God has been given to us forever because he has adopted us as his heirs, sons and daughters. You know who you are. You know what's in store for you. That is a present comfort for your present pain. The second way that God's comforting spirit comforts us is through the fellowship that we have in a community of like-minded sufferers who mourn alongside of us. And we read this passage earlier today. The Apostle Paul was retelling an account where he was so sick on one of his missionary journeys. He was so sick and so ailing that he despaired to the point of death, almost despaired to the point of death, he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And in that context of retelling that story, he talks about fellowship. He says, he's, he, he calls God the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. How? Well, hold on. Who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. A way of, a, a way of, of rephrasing that is God comforts you when you suffer so that others who are going to suffer in the same way will be encouraged by you. God comforts you and then you comfort others who, have, who are going through the very same thing. Paul went on to say, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So present help for those who mourn by assuring them that they are children of God and loved by God as his adopted sons and daughters and comfort by fellowship with others who are mourning in similar ways, a community of those who are grieving together. Another way of saying all of this, folks, is, is to quote Thomas Chisholm's hymn. Um, help me out. Thank you, great is thy faithfulness. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, we sing. With some emphasis here on strength for today. So my encouragement to you is this, mourn, mourn, grieve, but do it with assurance and do it in fellowship. That is God's present comfort to you. And when, and when the writer James said, because this scares us to death, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He says that in this context. 
of the assurance that God provides you, of the fellowship that he gives you. Be wretched and mourn and weep in the context of God's blessed assurance, in the context of Christian fellowship. So another way of saying what Jesus is trying to say in the second beatitude would be to say, flourishing are they who mourn with assurance. They who mourn in fellowship. Be careful not to mismanage your grief. Be careful to not waste your sorrow. Yeah. You don't want to waste something that's precious. We do it in many ways. Here are two main categories of how we mismanage and waste our grief. We ignore it or we cling to it. We run, we run away for it or we pamper it and nurse it. Ignoring your grief may disguise itself in becoming a workaholic. Ignoring your grief may disguise itself in developing a passion for pleasure or or a fixation on play. You play hard. You play a lot. You're all about your leisure and your free time, being a free spirit. Those are some ways that ignoring grief might present itself. But busyness and success, instant gratification, leisurely apathy is not flourishing, friends. Clinging on to your grief, nursing your grief, enabling your grief can present itself in unconsolable mourning. Nothing will change the way you feel. Nothing will pull you out of your sadness. Clinging to your grief can represent itself in killing all your relationships when they get difficult, burning your bridges behind you, nursing an unforgiving heart, Enabling a bitterness, a skepticism about life and people. But turning your mourning into vengeance, my friends, turning your mourning into despair is not flourishing. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, and and I'm just going to paraphrase this, but he, he essentially says, those of you who comfort in things other than God, Whatever you've got right now that comforts you, riches, popularity, good health, good looks, lots of friends, you laugh all the time, life's a breeze for you, life's great, things are getting better and better, enjoy it, it's the only comfort you're going to get. Those of you who feel comfortable now, enjoy it, you've received your reward, and eternity is coming. Woe to those who cannot mourn. Woe to those who will not mourn while seeking comfort in the things of this world. Woe to those who cannot mourn while seeking comfort in God alone, who cannot grieve their own suffering and wait for God to deliver them, who cannot grieve for the suffering of others and plead with God to deliver them, who cannot grieve every day for their own sin. And rejoice every day in God's forgiveness. But instead, instead, would you hear God's future promise to those who mourn? 
Not only his present comfort, but his promise for future comfort. Would you listen? I'm not going to post it. I'm not going to project it. I just want you to hear God's promise to those who mourn. He will dwell with them. This is from Revelation 21. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he also said from the throne, behold, I am making all things new. That's what the apostle John heard in his vision recorded in the book of Revelation. Behold, I am making all things new. The promise of Christianity, friends, is the joy of full restoration, body and soul, all of creation, culture, art, politics, government, full restoration, nothing less. That's the promise of Christianity. So this, I think, is is why Jesus said that the mourners, the true mourners, are blessed because they hope. They don't only grieve, they hope. They have hope. Maybe that's what you're missing. Grief without hope. Hope in God's comfort. Not hope in fill in the blank. Not hope in what you want to hope in. The answer you want to get. But hope in him himself. Johnny Erickson Tata suffered a paralyzing accident when she was a young woman resulting in her lifelong, still to this day, quadriplegia. And as she wrote about her accident and how it initially changed her life and how it initially brought her to a deep depression, she talks about how her depression because of her illness, brought her to such humility that she was finally willing to seek God for her comfort. When everything was taken away from her and all she could do was lie suspended upside down from a hospital bed because of her back, her spine bone spurs and with a pen in her mouth could flip through the pages of the Bible. At that moment, she said that God humbled her and she began she began to trust in him alone for comfort. And, and as she shares this story in, in the book, Suffering and the Sovereignty of God, she has one chapter in this book. She said something that astounded me. She said, my cross to bear in following Jesus. Because you know when Jesus says, if you're gonna follow me, you gotta pick up your cross daily, right? This is how she applies that for her. She said, my cross is not my wheelchair. It's my attitude. You must kill daily your attitude. If you're going to follow Jesus, you must kill daily your attitude about the things that grieve you. Your cross is not your unemployment. Your cross is not your conflict. It's not your cancer. It's not your losses. Your cross is is not your singleness or your marriage. 
Your cross is your attitude about all of these things. That's what needs to die. That's what needs to be killed daily if you're going to follow Jesus and be blessed. Your attitude, the way you respond to the broken world, the way you respond to the brokenness of the people around you, you respond to your own brokenness. Your attitude needs to be crucified daily as you shift your focus to the hope that God gives you. And the hope that he gives you is through the assurance of his never-ending love for you as, your, as his son and daughter and the fellowship he gives you with like-minded sufferers who know what you're going through because they've been through it too. You must replace what you're hoping in with the comfort, the only comfort that works in the universe. Or another way of saying this to quote Thomas Chisholm's hymn again is strength for the today and bright hope for tomorrow with the emphasis on bright hope for tomorrow. Will you trust Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus, great. Will you trust him when he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted? I think what really brings comfort when you know, somebody in your life has, is a real comfort to you, I, I think what really works is two things. What makes somebody a comfort to you is they have compassion to relate to you and they have power to help you. Can you ever think of somebody that has brought you comfort in your life and they lacked the power to help you and they lacked the compassion to relate to you? And I think you find it all in Jesus Christ. Jesus, whose compassion caused him to weep at the grave of his friend Lazarus, whose, whose power caused him to raise Lazarus from the dead right after that weeping. Take comfort in this man of sorrows acquainted with grief. This man who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame and accomplished your reconciliation with God, your promise of eternal comfort. God comforts now, partly, yeah, just partly now, but fully will comfort those who grieve in hope. Christian hope is not wishful thinking. Christian hope is a solid assurance that God's promises will come true. So grieve, yes, grieve, mourn, and if you have to, weep and wail, but in hope. Accept your suffering. Grieve for the sufferings of others. Grieve for your own sin. And taking comfort in your heavenly Father who blesses you to grieve with assurance, who blesses you to grieve in fellowship, people. Let's pray. Our God of all comfort, we, despite our suffering and sorrow, we rejoice. We rejoice because you have, not a, you have promised not to abandon us. You are with us right now, even in our pain. We praise you for Jesus who did not ignore the sorrows of this world who entered into them. We thank you for Jesus who did not avoid 
his own suffering, but went to the cross because he saw the joy of it. Despite the shame of it, he saw the joy of it as well. We praise you that although Jesus was full of joy, he was full of sorrow. He knows our grief. He weeps with us. But we praise you that we have hope that he didn't stop there, that he went and hunted death down. He cried over death and then, and then he cut off its head for all the universe to see. Thank you. What a savior. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, help us to truly trust him. Help us to come to him with our griefs and help us to find hope in him. Thank you for his present comfort. Thank you for his promise that our comfort will be complete and our joy will be restored to us when he returns to make all things new. Amen.